0: unlock the power of your mind this is provocative enlightenment with Eldon Taylor welcome and thank you for joining us today the next two hours are devoted to learning something more not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax but about how what and why we believe as we do a time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. I do love our chat room, and we have some truly great folks that join us every week. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please.
1: It is a great chat room. It's a very solid chat room. You know, I've heard people talk about different chat rooms that they attend and the conversations can get kind of very disjointed and all of that stuff. But no, we have some, we have some really good conversations. We get answers and questions. Uh, Everything seems to flow. It's, it's like being with a group of friends, um, discussing a great radio show. It is really cool. So do come join us. That is ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Andrea and I are both waiting for you there.
0: Okay. Now, every week, Ravinder, you archive the chat room. Yes, we do. And if somebody isn't catching the show live they can still access the chat room, see the chat log, because often the guests might show up in there, or you're putting earls up based on conversations and things of that nature. So all that reference material remains.
1: Yes, it does. Uh,
0: Tell us about that. How do they access it?
1: It does. Basically, you can go to provocativeenlightenment.com dot com, not dot com, <laughs> dot com. Click on the archives, uh, click on whichever show you're interested in. You'll see the chat room right there. Just click on it and the box will open up and you'll get all the information. You can, you know, look through it really quickly and find the important earls or titles and things like that. You know, there's oftentimes a uh, guests can talk about an earl or a book title on the air and you don't quite catch the details, but we normally catch it and we'll stick it in there.
0: Cool, good. All right. In this week's Spotlight, we turn our attention to nothing other than free will. And I'm going to suggest to you that free will is not free. Over the past several months, I've had the opportunity to interview several neuroscientists, all of whom are considered to be at the very top of their game. I have taken one observation to them all with this question. Where is free will? Here is the problem. Using functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, to watch the brain live time, we discovered that the technician can know what you will decide six or more seconds before you know what your choice will be. Now think about that. Just imagine that you are the subject and you have a selection switch in your left hand and another in your right. And an alternative appears on a screen before you. All this while your brain is being watched using fMRI. You consider the alternatives for a moment. Make your choice and squeeze the switch. All seems good. But the technician has recorded your choice correctly seconds before you made it. Seconds, not milliseconds, seconds. How is that possible? Well, the fact is this. Your non-conscious has made the decision for you before your conscious mind has retrieved that decision. This should cause all of us to begin to examine what it is that we believe, what it is that that vast reservoir of information contained in your non-conscious has tucked away, guiding our decisions. And how do we access the data and change that output. There is nothing more important when it comes to free will than owning it, and you cannot own what you don't know. Not only is this true, but what you don't know can really destroy your highest ambitions. The data is clear. If you believe that you're tasting a great wine when in fact it is a cheap wine, this prejudice alone will actually change your brain function causing you to experience the cheap wine in the same physical way as the expensive wine. The actual chemistry of the brain changes. Our beliefs, conscious and non-conscious, are so powerful that your belief can literally regulate the effect of nicotine. Research shows that if you think you are smoking a nicotine-free cigarette, that your brain will process the nicotine without ever exciting a reward pathway. To quote a recent study, nicotine has formidable effects throughout the brain, especially in the reward-based learning pathways. Nicotine teaches the brain that smoking leads to reward. Once the brain learns that correlation, the addictive chemical cycle is difficult to break. In this study, scientists tracked the brain responses using fMRI. The scientists found people who believed they had smoked nicotine had significantly higher activity in their reward learning pathways. Those who did not believe they had smoked nicotine did not exhibit those same signals. Close quote. So the next time you think about free will, question what you mean by free. Who, after all, is in charge of your choices, your decisions, your beliefs? Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder?
1: You know that. I mean, that is the focus behind everything that you teach: is uh, thinking about what it is that you're thinking about and why, and the subconscious programming that goes on. So I find that all interesting. But I find the <clears throat> the other part where you talk about um, the people who are smoking cigarettes and they were told that it wasn't, and so they didn't show the same addictive thing. I think oftentimes you can see the opposite side of that as well, especially with kids and alcohol. You know, as they begin to drink alcohol, they expect that they're going to get super drunk, and so they can act a lot more drunk than they really are.
0: You've Um, attended more than one of my seminars, and we've talked about the Bar Lab experiment, uh which initially was done at the University of Washington in Seattle, where, for all intent and purposes, they did create an artificial bar. And then they decoyed students with the idea that, you know, you can learn in a safe environment how to handle liquor. Students would enter. They were observed and videoed from behind one way glass, the beautiful bar with all the liquor bottles, etc. What they did do is they would take the tip of a glass and they would submerge it in alcohol so that the glass itself had that smell. But the rest, whatever you ordered, was non-alcoholic. And yet, the students became <laughs> drunk, literally drunk. So you're absolutely right. The placebo and the nocebo effect, very, very real. They are.
1: They are. I, I find all of that stuff fascinating. Um, but it's tutorial as well because, you know, you're back to... Thinking about thinking and why you're thinking about it and not having decisions based on sound bites and snippets and things that feel good or what's popular. You know, all of that stuff's been on my mind a lot recently as I'm thinking about the whole process.
0: Okay, moving on. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Jay Weitner and we spoke of conspiracies in the occult, including faked assassinations and hidden agendas. Now interestingly, just when things were getting really hot, right down with the minutia and detail, a tree fell on the station's power line and we went dark. <laughs> so more than thirty minutes of our broadcast failed to air live, but we did manage to record the entire show and you can listen to it again in our archives. Okay, Julie wrote, What happened to your show? Did they cut you off the air? <laughs> we, we had several of that. Ryan wrote, If Jay is correct and the elite are writing the news stories about a movie script to get us to hate each other and to fear one another, then I guess it's working. Emily wrote, I just can't get my head around the idea that public assassinations of men like JFK and Robert Kennedy were scripted and filmed like a movie. I'm sorry, but your guest must be a bit loony to believe this stuff. (laughs) Andrea commented, the more the people that are involved in an incident, the harder it is for me to believe it was fake. You know, I used to think that, too. But I was in China, and uh, a magician had just walked through the Great Wall. Tens of thousands of people had seen him do this, and the very first question that I was asked at the end of my seminar was, how did he manage to walk through the Great Wall? They believed it, so the sleight of hand can fool very many. Judy remarked, makes you wonder if the beheading from ISIS is faked. It all seems to be manipulation." CB wrote, if they want federal police, that's like the Federal Reserve Bank. Consolidated power is a worrisome thing. Dennis wrote, I knew George Nurry was wrong about LGB, L.P.J. having JFK knocked off. I'm going to have to listen again to Jay Weedner interview, since absorbing his wag the dog theories will take some doing. Finally, someone who almost makes David Icke seem mainstream. Now, I don't know if you know David Icke, but that's a... Okay, I was kind of hoping you'd ask Jay Wiedner if the 85 male Illuminati were also reptilians, as I think Ike believes. Can't wait to hear your next interview with Weedner for another trip down the rabbit hole. Linda wrote, I heard you and George Nury talk about the Kennedy assassination, and then you and Jay Wiedner the next week called it a fake. Did I misunderstand something? Well... Jay has some interesting ideas, Linda, but they are not mine. I tend to agree with George on these things. I don't think Sandy Hook was faked, nor were either of the Kennedy assassination staged. But then that's just my opinion. Still, Jay does present some very interesting possibilities backed by observation and fact. And just because one idea might not work, that does not mean all of his ideas are false, not by a long shot. The fact is, 80 people own the same amount of wealth as more than 3.5 billion people. And money can buy a lot of influence. So bottom line, don't buy everything you think you see and hear. Do you wish to add anything to that, Ravinder? I could write a whole book on what I'd want to add on that, but
1: I will try to go really quickly. Firstly, regarding ISIS and the beheadings, um, you know, we've had instances before where there were stories about babies being pulled out of incubators and bayoneted, but that was designed to get the American people to support the war. That's right. This ISIS beheading, Twice. the ISIS beheadings, would certainly get Americans to support action. I mean, I'm all for shock and awe every time I see those videos, but our current administration doesn't do anything. So no, I don't think the ISIS-1s are a fake and I think we make a huge mistake in getting comfortable with the fact that people are dying. It's horrible. It needs to end. Um, I think maybe the Illuminati were outside the recording studio and they chopped down the tree. <laughs> so that's why they knocked it off. <laughs> when it comes to all of this conspiracy stuff, you know, I would have I would have said it was all baloney too, until I started working on your book, Sheeple. Cause there, you bring all of this information together, and there are great chunks of it that we're aware of, but for some reason we just, you know, we can be really upset about it as a, as a people. All the Americans are really upset, and then they forget about it. And then something else comes along and they get upset and they forget about it. But you don't realize the amount of research that has been done behind. And your book is really comprehensive. So beforehand, I would have said I was not a conspiracy nut these days. I hope I'm not a conspiracy nut. But I do stop and pay attention because if you do a quick search on Google, you can find lots of places where there are lots of conspiracies that were proven to be true afterwards and
0: we only harm
1: ourselves by dismissing them
0: well and with regard to the book sheeple while everybody's listening out there because i saw a a remark in the chat room last week i think it was mark that said what are you going to think of eldon if he agrees okay what we did with sheeple is what i would do as an investigator in law enforcement i looked for a pattern and what we delivered was a pattern and the pattern can say this Follow the money and pay attention because you're being compromised. Period. End of quotation. But that's another another show. Okay, moving on. Jack wrote, Thanks for your awesome radio show. Sean wrote, I bought some of your CDs recently, and I'm seeing some wonderful changes in the kids ages five to thirteen. Reverend doctor Mike wrote, doctor Eldon Taylor is the world's subliminal communications expert. His ideas, books, and audio products are par excellent. I personally use them as a resource in my own work, and I recommend everyone review them and decide for themselves. Well, thank you, Reverend. And Carl wrote, shortly after reading several of Eldon Taylor's books, I was enthused to hear that he would be giving a talk at a Hay House event in Vancouver. I am extremely grateful that I had the opportunity to hear his presentation, as well as having had some time to connect with him. As a result of seeing the high level of integrity that Eldon maintains, as well as the expertise in his profession, we purchased several Intertalk CDs, and we have been enjoying and benefiting from them for several months now. Eldon truly is an expert in his field, and his willingness to share his knowledge is a great service to humanity. Eldon's work educates individuals through self-discovery and thereby provides them with valuable tools on the journey to self-empowerment. Thank you, Eldon. Now, Ravinder, the next time you write copy, you should write copy that's that strong. Thank you, Carl. Okay.
1: (laughs) You're complaining about my copywriting? (laughs) All right.
0: That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, E-L-D-O-N at com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. I read all of your emails and try to answer them as well, so please keep them coming. Now to this week's show, Dream Power with Dr. Jillian Holloway. Now a word of bias here. When it comes to dreams, Jillian is my go-to. She has been on the show before and is among my favorite guests. So let me tell you a little about her. Dr. Jillian Holloway has been on the faculty of Mary L. Hearst University in Portland, Oregon for 21 years. She has also taught college-level courses in the Psychology of Intuition for 20 years And her work with intuition and brilliant sanity is extremely popular among students. Her research into modern symbolism and themes in dreams has been widely acclaimed by therapists as one of the most useful and sound resources for self-exploration. Her work has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times health blog, magazines such as Shape, Allure, Cosmopolitan, Self and Woman's World. She is a veteran of over 500 radio and television interviews, including Coast to Coast AM and ABC's 2020. Her books include the Complete Dream Book, Discover What Your Dreams Reveal About You and Your Life, Five Steps to Decode Your Dreams, A Fast, Effective Way to Discover the Meaning of Your Dreams, Dreaming Insights, A Five-Step Plan for Discovering the Meaning in Your Dream, The Complete Dream Book of Love and Relationships, Discover What Your Dreams and Intuition Reveal About You and Your Love Life, and Erotic Dreams, the Secret to Understanding Woman's Hidden Passions. Guys, you've got to read that one. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Jillian Holloway.
2: Hi, Alden. It's great to be with you again.
0: It's great to have you here. You heard the setup piece uh, about free will. Yeah. You know, dreams are one way of accessing our non-conscious beliefs. Do you or have you found that our dreams ever reveal this conflict of purpose and beliefs—the non-conscious versus the conscious—and if so, can you provide an example or two?
2: Oh, sure, absolutely. Dreams are are tracing; they're like a roadmap, in a sense, of what's going on in our inner life, both uh, conscious and unconscious, and what some people call the the top dog and the underdog. In our personalities, we have a side that we identify with and that we allow up to the microphone, but we also have traits and talents and desires that don't get any airtime. They're either not politically correct or they're out of fashion or they don't pay well, and so we keep them sort of at bay, but sometimes those are our best abilities and our best gifts that that we just don't give a fair shake to. And that's what a lot of dreams are about, Eldon, where there is somebody being victimized, whether it's a dog or an animal or uh, a prisoner of war or somebody that was wrongly imprisoned and is forgotten about. Those type of high pathos dreams are often about a side of the dreamer. And I see a lot of that with people who are artistic. This is not a great age in history in which to be an artist And so a lot of people have just dropped their greatest talents and some of their greatest passions because they've been so discouraged about pursuing them, even for their own love and their own benefit. So I see a number of prisoner of war dreams or prisoner in the basement dreams, and they turn out to be an artistic talent or somebody that wants to write a a book, their first book. You remember how discouraging everybody was about writing your first book? Like, Mm -hmm. it can't happen. And so I I see a great deal of that with my students and clients.
0: Interesting. All right, I I jumped ahead. You know, Dr. Holloway, on this show we like to establish three things in our interviews. Who is the messenger, what is the message, and how do we use it? So to that And let's begin by having you tell us about yourself. Many of our listeners are perhaps not acquainted with you. So what were you like as a youngster? What did you want to be when you grew up? And have you fulfilled those childhood ambitions, redefined them, or just abandoned them all together?
2: (laughs) Wow, that's fascinating. You could do every radio show on on those themes, because that's one of the things I like most is the the personal narrative. Um, When I was a kid, I was radically introverted and shy. And I wanted to be a writer, essentially. And until I learned, very much like what I was just talking about, I learned that that is not a viable, in quotation marks, not a viable career. Um, And I ended up going into psychology, which turned out to be a very good fit, had a wonderful career as a teacher, um, and have taught and facilitated people in working with their dreams as a launching pad into sorting through what they want and they don't want in their lives. So, uh, it's been a very interesting odyssey, part therapy, part counseling, part teaching, and part writing. Um, I often dreamt, by the way, of having murdered someone, and I had the body, and I didn't know where I was going to put the body, and I would, I would be sweating like crazy in the dream thinking, well, I'll bury it in the basement. And in fact, the person that I had always killed was a writer. And through some snafu or other, I had, I had bumped her off. And now I was hiding her and burying her in the basement. And after a couple of decades of that, I realized that this was a part of my psyche that said, not so fast. Whether or not you can make a living as a writer is a separate question. But letting that writer have a shot at life is the main question. And that really helped me unlock a big part of my life.
0: And you're a great writer, and I enjoyed every one of your books. But So as a child, you were shy. Uh, were you a good student? Uh, did you, you know, participate in athletics? I mean, I happen to know that you're a bit of an equine lover. so.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm a horse person. Well, I wasn't uh, terribly athletic, Eldon, until I got into martial arts as a teenager. And that was one of those synchronicities. You know, I thought I was studying self-defense, and my folks thought that would be great. And what I was really studying, of course, was consciousness.
0: Spirituality. Yes. Yeah.
2: And the and the Buddhist tradition and the and, you know, the exercise and the self defense. That was great too. But that was really secondary. I think the reason that I was led into martial arts was so that I could study consciousness and how time is an illusion and how focus changes everything. So I've kind of had a an intense life where I get involved in a hobby for a decade or two and it becomes more than a hobby, it's an Odyssey. And now, of course, I'm very involved with horses and uh, trail riding and spend as much time outside as I possibly can.
0: So the the current odyssey is horses. You didn't study martial arts because you had a boyfriend that jilted you.
2: Oh, (laughs) no, no. But I think that maybe being involved in martial arts kept me from having a boyfriend until really late in life because (laughs) I was extremely obsessive about my hobby.
0: Okay. All right. Jillian, when we come back, we've got a break coming up. When we come back, there's a fair amount of talk about precognitive dreams. And we have had, uh, of late, several guests who talked about 9-11 and the towers Mm -hmm. and the number of people that, you know, are reporting that they dreamed about this, but they just discounted it because it seemed to be so absurd. I want you to tell us what you think that's about. Is that a collective kind of dream? Did it happen, uh, or are these just people that want to capitalize on it? Great We're speaking with Dr. Jillian Holloway about her life, work, and dream books. To learn more about Dr. Holloway, visit her website at LifeTREKS. That's L-I-F-E-T-R-E-K-S. dot com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back.
3: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Intertalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Julian Holloway about her life, work, and books, all of them about dreams, including our erotic side. Now we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music more important to us than many realize. Music awakens forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including therapy and investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. As such, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in someone's favorite musics. So now we just played River of Dreams by Billy Joel. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Holloway, and how does it instruct us about who you are?
2: Well, I love this song because it is, it's all about dreams. It's all about wandering through consciousness at night and, and finding what you're looking for when you don't even know what it, what it is. That is essentially, I believe, what our dreams are doing all night long. They're trying to help us get to the place we want to be in life, recover from whatever we need to recover from, and kind of pull everything together, even though we don't know what that's going to look like or how to do it. And so that I'm very moved by that. And also, uh, not many people know that Billy Joel has said that he dreams all of his musical compositions. Before he writes the songs, he dreams them. And so he's very inspiring to me that way, too, because we know a lot about dreams and creativity and how the dreaming consciousness is a little more readily connected with many of our talents.
0: How about you? Do you dream what you write before Uh, you write it?
2: Well, not so much what I write, but I often dream about being in a university setting, I call it the dream university, and a lot of people have this. They're on some other wavelength, in some other realm, uh, almost like another dimension, where they're receiving instruction, and sometimes it's very advanced sort of instruction, like getting a lecture from Nikolai Tesla or something, and, and it just saturates you. And often we can remember What, what we were dreaming about when we awaken and make notes and really learn something extra. Um, sometimes it's not, it doesn't, is, it's not as coherent or cohesive or memorable, but often it is very, very memorable. So, um, yeah, I do get class ideas, exercise ideas, uh, intervention ideas from those types of dream lectures fairly often.
0: So if you, you ever, you know, heaven forbid, find yourself in this state of limbo, you've lost consciousness, cognitive abilities, this is a song to play to you to wake you up.
2: Oh, I think it might, yes, very much so.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, it's I, I love Billy Joel's music, and it's, you know, you cannot sit still and listen to that one. So before the break, I asked you about 9-11. Let's pick it up there. How many people... Had dreams of the towers, or is this, again, just folks stepping forward to make that claim?
2: Well, we have literally no way of knowing if folks are, are trying to make a claim or sensationalize. But my, my feeling when I'm hearing someone's story, and I'm sure you do this too, is you make a, a judgment based on the credibility of the person and whether they're trying to be self-aggrandizing or whether they're reporting something that scares them unsettles them horrifies them and often whether they say don't tell anybody or don't use my name then they're not trying to get any credit if they want to remain anonymous. Um, the dream workers that I was in touch with during that time we were calling each other like crazy and the because we were getting so many uh, emails and calls from people who were horrified that they had had a dream that they now recognized was a premonition. of of that day. Um, Incidentally, we dream of airplanes very often, but airplanes flying into high towers is not a typical dream, and so uh, it would not have been something that people would have been dreaming about anyway in the normal course of events because of anxiety or tension.
0: So, I take it that you you give credibility to it, and I know a couple of people personally that I give credibility to mm-hmm. uh who have had this this nine eleven dream as a, a precognitive event but if if that's the case you're a clinician you're a scientist uh, wh- Where is it coming from? I mean, are we talking about uh the conspirators somehow uh creating an m field sheldrake 's mine field? Uh, or, uh, I mean, how is it possible that we're tapping into this, and what is it they're tapping into?
2: Well, I do I do take Sheldrake's theory fairly seriously, and I also believe that biologically we are wired um, to be able to read the future to some extent. I know you've probably had Dean Radden on your show. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's very involved with looking at how we... Are, are meant to be able to pick up on things in the future and to register shock or warnings before they happen. So I'm not sure that this is a, a spooky uh, phenomenon as much as it is a biological one.
0: So you believe that we have, and, and I'm just going to you know, paraphrase this mm-hmm. a bit, antenna of a sort that connects us somehow Uh, maybe like an animal that knows a storm is coming or there's about to be an earthquake, Mm -hmm. and that some of us process that in our dreams.
2: Yes, I absolutely think it's it's perfectly normal. And as we we learn more and more scientifically, we're going to find out that this is the way we are meant to be, and it's become more vestigial or it's been suppressed. Um, over the centuries but it seems to be re-emerging now and you know you've heard mothers talk about knowing when they're whether they're asleep or awake knowing when something's wrong with a child this right. is the number one place where premonitions are reported and they tend to be accurate as parent and child and so biologically for the survival of the family the survival of the species it makes a lot of sense that this would be an ability that would be advantageous to us and those who have it would reproduce,
0: and those who didn't have it might not, might not survive. Okay, now, Julian Jaynes, um, late Julian Jaynes at Princeton University, wrote The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Mm-hmm. You're probably familiar with this because in his theory, before we had speech per se, we organized societies basically in a, in a kind of telepathic way. Um, the farmer knew that it was time to come in from the field, um, because he received some mental image that that was the instance. Uh, when you talk about we've been educated away from that, we, we were repressing those natural abilities, is that what you're, what you're addressing?
2: Well, yes, essentially. Uh, I don't know that we've been educated away from it. I think abilities, Come into fashion and go out of fashion, just like religion and politics and, and what's politically correct or socially correct at a certain time in history. Looking at dreams and the beliefs about dreams throughout history, I can see there are times when there was a lot of belief in spirituality, and then that, that went away. And right now, science is king. Science is on the throne. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing right or wrong about any of these. It's just looking at the trends. And honoring the fact that we are learning a great deal, but we are still the victims of the of the trends and the pressures um, that are impinging on us at this time in history. Right, so I well, think science is suppressing a little bit of of uh, what we sci- are able to do.
0: I I don't know that science is. I I don't know that I'd agree with that, but scientism as a new faith is. There's no question in my mind about that. Yes, thank you.
4: But what I meant
0: by educated is, you know, young people very often possess what we think of as ESP, abilities of some kind. You know, they have precognitive dreams or, or they may pick up, you know, what mama's thinking uh, what you might call telepathic uh, abilities mm-hmm. um, they might know when their father's coming home kind of like shell drake's study of these dogs mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and they're told you know no you know that's silly you're making it up that's in your imagination <clears throat> and and we're basically enculturated that way and that's what i meant by educated yeah um you know to lose that side of ourselves. do you find that to be true of dreams as well
2: I do find that to be true. It's very typical for people to be vivid dreamers and to rather magical dreamers where they have magical powers and they're flying all the time. And then at age about 12 or so, that kind of dries up. And people have more problem-oriented dreams, more anxiety dreams, and that continues on into, well into maturity. And then about 40 or so, uh, if we're lucky, a lot of the magic comes back when people Mature and turn to questions of philosophy and spirituality. Some of those more luminous or numinous dreams return. It's interesting.
0: You know, I think there's another factor here, but I'm going to I'm going to put it to you as a question. Um, you know, as as you mature, you begin to turn off your dreams. You're not paying as much attention to them, and very few people, according to the data, actually keep dream journals, mm-hmm. and so do you believe that, that we do just kind of desensitize ourselves to this and that one of the reasons we, we are unable to remember dreams is that we really turned off our interest in them?
2: Oh, absolutely. That's very well put. We are discouraged from it, and the less attention we pay to them, the more they appear to be comprised of noise and gibberish. And I see very often as people will join a dream-sharing group where we meet every week or every month in a circle and share our dreams, their dreams, the content of them, not only the way they look at them, but the content of the dream itself will alter Eldon and become more of a narrative, more story form, more cohesive, and more with an obvious moral to the story. It is as if a part of their consciousness realizes that it's being listened to for a
0: change. So I think the message here for everybody is if you give the dreams attention, if you just put a journal alongside your bed, I know this worked for me, you'll begin to remember your dreams much more frequently. And then as you maybe journal a little bit about them, even if it's just a note here or there, not trying to interpret, then the dreams become Fuller, and the story begins to become richer. would you say that that's true, or was that just an isolated incident with myself
2: no that 's absolutely right Eldon. The more we we give them a fair shake, really, instead of treating them as a, as a poor relation that 's uh, just noise in our life uh, it 's a wonderful thing how much that can open up and how deep the messages can come sometimes they are truly
0: life-changing amen to that i remember reading hans Holzer's windows to the past years ago and he told a story there are several stories but the one that really stuck in my mind was a story of a woman who dreamt that bombs were dropping on england and this was well before world war ii in her dream a man came to the door of her home during a blackout and she was just a child when she dreamed this, but she was an adult in the dream. And she opened up the door to the man and he savaged and killed her. Many years later, during World War II, this exact scenario occurred to her. She had written it down in a diary, so she was able to pull out this diary and show that she'd written this down as a child. I, I don't recall now. She's 12, 13, 14, somewhere in that age. Maybe she was 10. Uh, but Because she remembered the dream, she refused to open the door and instead called the police. According to Holzer, it was the dream that saved her life. How common do you think that sort of thing is?
2: Well, I think it's very common. I literally believe that we are all intended to have that ability, and I hear stories like that very frequently, Eldon. Of course, you're going to remember that for the rest of your life, no question about it. And it makes me believe that we have precognitive dreams not because the future is etched in stone, but as part of our survival ability, that perhaps telepathy is all about survival. Um, And I hear stories all all the time where people alter their behavior. They don't let in someone or they lock the car doors or they don't go down the alley or they don't give money to the panhandler or whatever it was in the dream that set off the series of events that killed them in the dream and they were able to change the outcome of that scenario that they glimpsed in the dream. So this is a wonderful mix. It's like a marriage of destiny and free will. This precognitive ability where we have the ability to exercise our free will and alter the outcome, sometimes save our lives or save the life of a loved one.
0: Yeah, I I find these stories really incredible uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which you touched on, but the other is you know, the scientist in me thinks about the source, you mm-hmm. know, and that is, okay, now now wait a minute. This is 20 years in the future. Mm-hmm. It involves more than a person, you know, it involved nations in a war. It involved a perpetrator who was probably a child as well at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is writing this kind of destiny? Where is this play written? I mean, what what orchestrates this behind the scenes that gives us the ability to see that far into the future
2: i know it really speaks to some of the uh, metaphysical theorists who suggest that we have some kind of an outline when we come into the life Um, that there is some not that everything is planned but that there are some lights on the runway there is this sketchy outline and some of Some of our deja vu experiences or precognitive experiences might be reflections of that outline that was put in place before we came here. I don't know, and I don't know if there's any way to know, but I certainly find that a provocative uh, idea.
0: Yeah, and that's very well put. I I like the idea of the runway because, to me, it it is evidence a priori that there um, is a script. Mm-hmm. And however, that script um, is delivered to each and every one of us, how whatever our choices might really be as we encounter the possibilities within that script, we nevertheless seem to have it. So it's it's like a path, it's like we you know, the karma dharma stuff. It's we've come in here to accomplish something or to do something or to pay some debt or something. And and it becomes some of the best evidence that I'm aware of that would argue in favor of that metaphysical proposition.
2: Mm-hmm. The, the longer I work with dreams and hear these stories, and they're so undeniably credible in, in many instances, the more of a believer I've become. And I think it doesn't hurt us to try on uh, a kind of an organic acceptance of the, experience, the life that we're living every day, um, even before it's all been proven and quantified for us to our satisfaction.
0: I agree totally. I'll be the pragmatist William James talked about. It works. It makes me feel good. And, you know, that extends my life, my wellness, etc. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. Listen, we recently hosted a guest who claims to experience transcendent dreaming. Now, according to her account, this is a sort of dream state similar to awakened dreaming, but where you tap into the potential of it all. So in her words, in this state, She sees many things that will occur in the future, but feels duty bound not to disclose them. Mm -hmm. She gave Sandy Hook as an example. Something she would uh, not inform anyone of because it was simply wrong to do so. So I got a two-part question for you, Jillian. What do you know about this transcendent dreaming proposition? And if you could save lives, are you not duty-bound, ethically speaking, to do what you can to save them?
2: Boy. Um, I, well, I'll answer the last part first, which is, that's a tough question. Um, and I know what this woman's referring to in terms of, it's kind of like the old Star Trek episodes, where the first priority was non-interference with the native planet. I think that's what she's um, referring to is is the law of non-interference. But my personal, you know, psychology or morality or whatever it is I would do my darndest um, if I if I could, and if that was wrong, so be it. So, but but I kind of understand what I think she's alluding to. In terms of the larger question of what is this transcendent dreaming, that's an interesting term and it's a great way to phrase this connecting across timelines and across space and time. What a lot of people are doing, I think, is very akin to remote viewing in the dream state. They can become partially lucid or they can connect with what they call Um, guides of some kind or teachers of some kind where they're shown what's going to happen and they're actually narrated through the course of events as if by a spirit guide. And again, the the credibility of the person is what hinges on whether or not I really buy into what's happening, but it sounds like this is a very credible person. So it's very possible that her situation is just as she described it to you.
0: Uh, you know, I'm I'm afraid I, maybe I spent too many years in law enforcement, Jillian. The, the bottom line is I, I just can't imagine knowing something was going to happen that would cause the pain uh, that, you know, was associated with something like Sandy Hook mm-hmm. and doing nothing about it and being okay with that. Just, you know, accepting, well, you know, that's our, our first priority. I'm afraid I maybe I'm just too anti-authority. I'm yes. going to throw that first priority away. I totally agree with you. You would have to do everything that you could do. Go ahead.
2: Oh well, I I think that even if even if it's someone's you know karma or destiny to pass or to go through an ordeal like that, um, I tend to believe that we have multiple. Opportunities for whatever lessons or whatever experiences we're meant to go through. So I don't think there's any harm in jerking someone out of the road if a, if a car is coming. Uh, if they're meant to go, they'll go some other way. I think it's, you can't do any harm by saving one, saving no, someone.
0: In fact, that's one of my pet peeves about. Some folks in the new age, you're right where you're supposed to be, you know, and so you're walking through the park, and there's this older person, and they're being mugged by a couple of thugs, and, well, they're right where they're supposed to be, you know, I shouldn't get involved. Well, BS on that. That's just, you know, I'm afraid that that doesn't work at all for me. I couldn't sleep. I wouldn't worry about dreaming. I would never be able to sleep again if I were to just walk on by. Jillian... We have another break coming up. When we come back, I I want you to flesh out for us how we discern between the prophetic dream and, and say, a fear-based dream. You know, because they seem to have some very common roots there. But you are my go-to person, so I trust you'll be able to do that. If you would like to know more about Dr. Jillian Holloway on her books, check out her website at lifetrex.com. Dot com and or flashofspirit.com All is one word, flashofspirit.com Now we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest and the story of your dreams especially your love relationships so you can check it out by joining the chat room just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat and we'll be right back
3: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. So long. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Jillian Holloway about the world of dreaming and the meaning behind our dreams. Now, Dr. Holliday, Holloway, we just played your second musical choice, Dream Lover by Bobby Darin. Do you have a dream lover? I mean, why this one?
2: Oh, I just for, first of all, I just love Bobby Darin. I, I kind of had a thing about him, and uh, I thought he was a wonderful artist. But this song, it just captures that. Open-hearted uh, feeling that you get when you dream about that perfect person, and I'm a great believer in love, all different kinds of love. And I think uh, everybody almost has had that feeling of, you know, I, I I know there's someone for me. And then when you find that someone, you realize it it really is worth worth the search.
0: Really is worth the search. Okay, so you you found your someone? Yes, I have. Okay, and he knows that you have a thing for Bobby Darren.
2: <laughs> I don't know if he knows about Bobby Darren. I haven't. I haven't, We haven't talked about that. But I should tell him.
0: Uh, yeah, you should tell him. You definitely should. I found out my wife had a thing for a very famous musician, Barry Manilow. Oh! But she didn't yeah. tell me until after I took her to a concert in Las Vegas, and I watched her swoon like a thirteen-year-old.
1: <laughs> yes. You yeah. have me off. I wasn't swooning at all. I was just enjoying myself. Yeah. I'm very self controlled and I'm I can keep fiction away from fact very easily. Yes.
5: Well
0: yes. music well, is very, fi- very emotional, yeah. Alright. Before the break, uh, I I suggested to you that I was going to ask you about How We Discern the Difference Between Prophetic Dreams and Fear-Based Dreams. you want to pick it up from there for us, please, Doc?
2: Oh, this is such a great question and an important one. The the short answer is by keeping track of your dreams, as you mentioned in a journal, you will see right away that there is a qualitative difference to a prophetic dream. It is like a completely different director came in and took over the movie. The qualities are different. Sometimes the color is different. The pace... um, just, just everything about it will have a certain resonance that's deeper. Sometimes it's, they're, it's because they're frightening. But we have a lot of frightening dreams. I'd say 75% of people's dreams are anxiety ridden and edgy. So just because you have an edgy dream doesn't mean it's going to come true. You need to look at the color, the pace, who's there, and how you feel when you awaken. A lot of people just realize that they had a prophetic dream once they wake up. So that can be a marker as well. But if, you, if you're not acquainted with your dreams, then you're not going to know what is unusual for you.
0: So the bottom line is, if we're not paying attention, if we have ignored this voice, this inner wisdom, mm-hmm. um, we will be unable to acknowledge when it is a a forewarning and when it is just a fear-based dream and we could just walk straight into something that we know better than to walk in, at least at some level of consciousness. Is that the message?
2: Well, essentially it is. We're going to still have a slight edge. I hear from people all the time that we're able to swerve their car or hit the brakes or do something in just a split second before the dream came true because they did realize in just a split second so you are going to have better reactions whether you take the dream seriously or not but it's much better if you can plan ahead and be on the on the alert so to speak a lot of people tell me about you know keeping their kids uh, away from the swimming pool because they had the dream of the child falling into the pool so so the ahead. the further ahead you can act the better it's going to be for you obviously
0: but if I'm interpreting it correctly, then, you know, it, the personal side of our dreams, I mean, how, what, what, what flow or what kind of symbols? Well, let me, let me ask it differently. There are a lot of opinions regarding the language of dreams. Mm-hmm. Some dream dictionaries, for example, offer simple interpretations based on a so called universal meanings, like archetypes, like, you know, well, even beyond archetypes. Indeed, many of them refer to Jung for their validation. But my reading of Jung doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion that I find in so many of these dream dictionaries. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Jung and Freud disagreed altogether on much of this. So what say you? Is there a universal language interpreter, a sort of Rosetta Stone for dreams, or are they really more personal in their nature?
2: Well, I think they're more personal in their nature, and, and what we can trace You you put your finger on it earlier in your talk, Eldon, is looking for patterns. And the patterns are far more telling than an individual symbol. So if you dream about a frog, that may or may not mean very much at all. But if you keep dreaming of frogs dying and other animals dying and other animals being poisoned and uh, lots and lots of dead or dying animals, that's a pattern, and that tells you that there is something in your life that is being poisoned, either physically or more metaphorically, and you need to trace the toxin and take action. So that's an example of a pattern of far, far more accurate for us than a single symbol.
0: So now you just hit on something I think that's important, too, um, different aspects of ourself. You alluded to this a little bit earlier when you were talking about... um, Killing someone and hiding them in your basement, and it was it was really an aspect of yourself. Um, a person you know dreams that um, that they're dying, um, and that may well not be about their death. It may be about something within themselves they're suffocating or they're they're putting away it is do I have that right
2: Oh, you have it absolutely right. It is actually very uncommon for people who are in the death process to dream of dying, uh, literally dying. They, they may dream of being separated from their loved ones or going on a long journey or moving to another country or moving to another planet. So the death dreams that we have that we're dying are
0: largely symbolic. You just read my mind. I was going to ask you about hospice dreams. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when a person in the hospice dreams of their death, the likelihood is uh, there's some aspect of themselves that they're still holding back. They're still with, you know, they're they're still not acknowledging as opposed to this is a precognitive kind of uh, dream.
2: Well, it's both. They can be. If they're in hospice and they are in the death process, then their dreams are going to be preparing them for the next big thing, which is going to be their transition out of the life. There's no question that that's the next big journey. So dreams have a very highly preparatory function, whether you're a pre-adolescent getting ready to become a man or a woman or whether you're on on the exit runway out of this incarnation. So hospice dreams are often about the dying process And they tend to run a gamut of kind of fear and poignancy. And then they take a turn as the person gets closer to death. The fear tends to go away. And often they can become quite joyous where they'll dream over and over again. They're going on a cruise with lost loved ones. And they're on the on the plank to get on the ship and everything is joyous and there's a lot of light. And that seems to be their psyche's. Way of preparing them that that you're through the rough patch now and you're ready for the exit.
0: I think that's the good way. Years ago, I volunteered, did some work in a hospice. Last week, uh, one of my favorite musicians of all time, B.B. King, passed away, and I Mm -hmm. thought, you know, he was in a hospice, and I. And I thought, I hope his dreams were all about the music he played because it just, you know, Mm -hmm. and he's playing it on the other side there, you know, and he'll be playing us in when it comes my turn. Yes. All right. When we address dream research and emotional dreams, most theorists view REM and non-REM dreams differently. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but researchers have found that different kinds of dreams occur in REM and non-REM sleep. So REM dreams tend to involve strong, socially aggressive emotions, while non-REM dreams are argued to involve friendly, non-threatening social interactions, or so the argument goes, as I say. Do you find this difference to have any merit at all when you're looking at, you know, dreams, dream powers, dream meaning, and so forth?
2: I don't dwell on that a lot. I think that there is some validity to what they're uh, arguing, but I don't find for the, for the helpfulness, the usefulness of the interpretation exercise, I'm not sure that that is really where the rubber meets the road for us. Um, what I do find is working with clients is that the time of night when you had a dream can help us with a clue. You were just talking about precognitive dreams, and I find that people who are drifting off into sleep, the first dream they have is more likely tied in with their telepathic abilities, and the last dream you have early in the morning is more likely to be tied in. So I often ask people, can you remember at what time in your sleep cycle you had this particular dream?
0: Wow. I mean, that's, that's very interesting. Well, let me ask this then. Charles Tart believes that we often leave our bodies during sleep, spontaneous OBEs. Does your research agree with this notion?
2: I suspect that that's the case, yes. And some people are more prone to that, and some people are more prone to remembering it. But I look at our dreams as adventures and lessons, and whether it was a real, quote-unquote, out-of-body experience and then you had this adventure, or whether you were lying in your bed and dreaming and your brain was doing the function uh, and you had this adventure, I still think the point of the adventure is where you get the leverage for the rest of your life. So I'm not I'm not as tied up with trying to figure out what kind of phenomenon it was as I am in, well, where's the lesson, where's the gift, where's the little takeaway?
0: Okay, but we had an earlier correlation that you brought up with remote viewing, and of course we've had major dames, Ed Dames on this show, Mm -hmm. and we've talked a lot about remote viewing, and um, remote viewing, OBEs, uh, people tend to conflate these, Uh, I'm very aware of that, and then in the sleep uh, dream issue, they they become additive as well. So I, I guess, you know, what I'm What I'm asking you is, in your opinion, do people report dreams that were indeed out-of-body experiences? Yes,
2: I do believe that that
0: they do. Mm -hmm. They do. Okay. Yeah. So uh, when you're dreaming that you're flying, you might just well be. Watch out for those 747s in the air, huh?
2: Yes. Well, I I haven't heard too many like that, but... What what I hear, Eldon, I'm sure you've heard the same stories, is that people dream that they roll out of bed, and then they're floating in their bedroom, and then they bounce up on the ceiling, and for mm-hmm. a while they just can't find their way past the ceiling, and they're bouncing against the ceiling. Well, that's pretty obviously uh, an out-of-body experience, the beginning of an out-of-body experience, and then they manage to get through the ceiling, and then they start flying. Um, so... They just have a different narrative and a different story that leads me to believe it was a probable out-of-body experience.
0: You know, one of the things that I find uh, really remarkable or, or curious, I'll just say it's a curious aspect of dreams, even when you're journaling, when you're logging, and maybe this doesn't occur to you, but everybody else I know, we still fail to remember a large part of our dreams. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, part of it is that they are so difficult to remember if they are disjointed. As you know, memory is an interesting thing, and if something, if we don't have the template to store it in because it's not logical or cohesive to us, we have a terrible time remembering it. Um, so that's part of it, and I think part of it is our, our cultural training at this point. And part of it is disposition or personality. Roughly 50% of the people don't automatically remember their dreams very well they have a harder time it doesn't seem to correlate with intelligence or anything like that the only thing we can find that i've seen is personality traits um the more type a the more thick boundary type of person has a little little bit more trouble remembering their dreams
0: ouch (laughs) (laughs) okay i have to ask this you know i i've i've you know, I've been kind of split on this. Freud, of course, looked at dreams as being, uh, you know, a process by which we were venting uh, unresolved conflict, and uh, many psychologists today, as you know, believe that dreams are nothing more than than a restorative period where we're consolidating memories. And and I think there's probably a lot of truth to all of that, um, as well as the the aspects of dreams that we've been discussing and. And so I just kind of thought that, well, maybe the dreams that we we don't recall so much, they are of the kind that would be memory consolidation or uh, conflict uh, resolution, orientation, something of that nature. Um, an intensity of dream is what I would what I would be inclined to remember. And and this is where I'm going now. I'm, I'm looking at a correlation. NDEs, flat-lined NDEs, and we have a memory, and and we're and we're troubled by that because they're, you know, in order for you to be able to remember anything, we're going to have to have some brain activity, right? Yeah. We've got to see some neurons firing, right? So w- w- I've kind of thought that there had to be an intensity that was involved in the NDE experience. Do you think there's any correlation here between intensity and the dreams that we recall versus the conflict orientation, etc.?
2: Yes, I do think we're, we're far more inclined to uh, remember dreams that have an intensity or dreams that touch us. You know, sometimes it's not drama so much as it any kind of emotion. So that can in fact, that's one of my arguments for why dreams are so melodramatic often they're they're just over the top It's almost like a bad soap opera sometimes, and I think that the that the dreaming mind, the part of our consciousness that constructs them or participates, helps to add that like spice so that it will be a memory trigger
0: so one more thing then while we're walking down our our yellow brick road here. Uh, many people argue that dreams can be a gateway to past lives, and there's some evidence of this. I mean, not long ago, all over the news, we had a young boy who recalled a life as a uh, a bomber pilot uh, during the Second World War. Could you know, and, and and a large part of his memory came through the revivification of dreams. Where are you on that? Can we remember past lives? Do we remember past lives? Is there any such thing as past lives <laughs> accessed in dreams?
2: Now is my chance to clear this up for everyone. Um, I I do think we probably have past lives. Uh, it seems just like an overwhelming coincidence if we don't that so many people have these partial memories. And I do think that Some dreams appear to represent glimpses of memory from a past life. The way that I think we can work with this is to ask, why this dream at this time? We know that dreams of other types of memory, childhood, for example, or adolescence, or your first job, or your first college experience, or your first love, uh, arise in our lives because they have relevance to what's going on now. So I tend to work with all dreams, like why this dream? Why now? What does it have to offer at this point in your experience? So whether it was from another century, another lifetime, or whether it was from 20 years ago, one of the critical questions is what's it got to offer today? But in, in answer to your larger question, yeah, I come down on the side of past lives
0: yeah well it's a cruel experiment if we get one trip around it certainly
2: is yeah yeah.
0: all right some people have horrible things happen to them during their dreams i mean horrible things Mm -hmm. why do you think dreams punish people in this way
2: well that's a i wouldn't have used the word punish because i don't think that's what's going on although sometimes they appear to be punishing us sometimes they appear to be torturing us
0: (laughs) well that's Um, worse than punishment
2: yeah um i think that dreams tend to be volatile and violent in order to get our attention i really do i think it's like a volume control if you ever had a conversation that escalated and you started to raise your voice because clearly the other person wasn't listening to you and you felt you had to raise your voice you automatically did that's what dreams do If they are not registering, if the, if the communication from one level of consciousness to the, to the other is not occurring, then there will be an escalation in violence and drama and emotion until there is some kind of connection that's made. And of course what we do, human nature, we resist and try and get away from that which we don't like or we're afraid of. So people tend to say, man, that was a horrible nightmare. I'm, ne- I'm going to put that right out of my mind and never think about that again. And what they have just done is they've said to their consciousness, I'm not listening to you. You're going to have to try harder tonight. And so the ante gets upped. That's one of the things that's occurring with, with these types of dreams. I work with people with nightmares a lot, and one of the first things I get them doing is just what you said at the beginning of our conversation. Write them down. Start telling them to friends, no matter how gross and scary they are, and that will start a connection to be made. It's fascinating. The dreams will actually de-escalate. They may still address the same issues, trying to make something whole again, but the drama and the violence and the horror will diminish.
0: Now, I have to pursue this just a little bit because there's more than one case that I'm aware of where an individual believed that they were possessed and the investigators who handled uh, the cases, psychiatrists, um, determined that they were actually punishing themselves in their dreams, not by bruising themselves with a physical blow, but by generating bruises from within, you know, I mean, we've got multiple personality disordered patients whose eye color changes when the personality changes, so I suppose that's very possible, but but have you dealt with that kind of a dream, that kind of punishment, the recurring dreams where they're beaten and when they wake, they have bruises as a result?
2: No, I haven't. Um, I have colleagues though that have told me some stories about that um, but they were a little different. those were uh, where they felt there was a demonic presence in the room that was biting them and holding them down and they woke up with bite marks and, th- and things like that um, one of the one of the difficulties with this quite frankly is that nobody wants to discuss it openly. Um, all, all my colleagues who tell me stories like that say, by the way, we never had this conversation. So there's still a lot of taboo running around in academic circles around this, Eldon, and I'm glad that you're just, you know, kind of throwing these, these ideas around because we have to have the conversation, even if we don't have any answers. Um, so in answer to your question, no, I, I don't really deal with, with that, those types of questions. I haven't come across them very often.
0: Well, I certainly think we should be investigating him. I totally agree with you, you know. All right, we have another break. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at elden at com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. Now, if you have a dream you'd like interpreted, Call us in the next half hour. We'll be taking your calls. We'll be right back following this short break.
3: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor.
4: The changes I've seen in my life are truly a blessing. InnerTalk has given me the tools to repair deep-seated beliefs that constantly worked against me. I find myself happier and more successful since I've used the InterTalk programs. I encourage you to discover the power of your beliefs by visiting www.innertalk.com and selecting your title for change.
0: Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show.
5: candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle Stardust and to whisper Go to sleep Everything Is alright I Close my eyes i
0: Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Jillian Holloway about the world of dreaming and the meaning behind our dreams. In this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, you have a special dream, symbol, something you would like interpreted, well, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Dr. Holloway, I'm not sure whether or not I've been sandbagged here, but we just played your third musical choice, <laughs> In Dreams, performed by Roy Orbison. Now, I want to know something. Uh-huh. Did you hunt out these three great pieces of music about dreams just for this show, or are they really among your favorites?
2: No, they're really among my favorites. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> All right, so what what's this one mean to you?
2: Um this one is about uh, the reality of our dream life. And, the, you know, I'm sure you deal with a certain amount of prejudice against the topics that you hold dearest because they're controversial and not right. everybody's on the same page. And I suffer the same effect in my career. So that I'm dealing with something and I've devoted my adult life to something that most people think is imaginary. And so any work of art that celebrates it and the reality of it and the heartfelt quality of it uh, really moves me. So that's why I like this song so much. My bias is that dreams are not only not imaginary, in a way they are more real than our everyday life.
0: Well, now that is a very perfect answer. And it's okay because I'll listen to Roy Orbison say anything. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> All right. Some of my own research instructs me that the brain is very open and receptive during REM sleep. It's during this time, as well as our other twilight stages, the so-called hypnopopic and hypnogawking stages, that we literally input information into our minds. In other words, this seems to be an optimal time for sleep learning, but it's also an optimal time to use a George Nuri technique. And and George tells me that what he does is he'll put an idea into his mind and then into the universe, and then he might dream about it, but he's sure that it's in, you know, I don't like the word infecting, but it is infecting. It is reaching out there to the rest of the universe. What are your thoughts on this?
2: Oh, I think that's a great idea. Um, I call that affirmative dreaming sometimes where you can go to sleep with a single sentence or an affirmation that you are repeating and you let it lull you to sleep like a lullaby. And then that is the springboard into what you're dreaming and sort of your state of consciousness for, for the dreaming process for that night. So I concur with George. I think that's a very powerful way, whether it's just personal or whether you're trying to seed consciousness in some way.
0: All right. Now, I'm going to have to ask you this one, and I should have got it before we got off to the break before, but when we were talking about NDEs, Mm -hmm. we've had Kevin Nelson, Dr. Kevin Nelson on the show, and he believes that the dying brain produces the NDE effect as a result of REM activity that's reported as, you know, um, I died and then I saw. So it, Mm -hmm. it... His peer-reviewed study, Patients Experiencing NDEs, also experienced REM activity. Now, I know that a correlation is not causation, but what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, I tend to come down in the camp that the the near-death experience is is an experience that we really are crossing over um, briefly, and we're starting the death process. That's my... Instinct about the reports that I have read and been told about, so I understand what they're trying to say about the brain activity, but um, it's it just doesn't quite hold everything together for
0: me. Okay, I guess let me let me try it a different way. Okay, because first of all, I agree. I think many NDEs are indeed real, but then. A flatlined NDE is entirely different than a correlation with REM and an NDE. Mm -hmm. And what Nelson found was, in, in his study, almost every single NDE had a correlating REM cycle. So I guess then you'd have to say, well, the pathway to transition goes through our dreams, goes through REM. Or you have to say, well, not all NDEs are real NDEs. REM is a preparatory state, perhaps, or or this experience is not a genuine. And where do you come down?
2: Well, gosh, I don't think that simply because we're having REM activity would preclude it from being a genuinely um, a genuine experience. I mean, there are, there are lots of things that can be happening when we're having REM. Uh, there are people who are dreaming and they can awaken, sit up in bed, look around the room, and have the dream superimposed on, on the waking background. So that, I mean, I guess I don't see yeah. no, the presence right. of brain activity yeah. as the absence of a real or spiritual experience.
0: So, essentially, we're saying that REM activity can be associated with an NDE, an OBE, remote viewing, or a dream. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. All right. One of the uses of dreams that I've encountered is the way the Chinese use dreams. Chinese medicine employs dreams to diagnose and treat health conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, Ravinder shared a story last week of how she discovered that she was poisoning herself during a dream, and as soon as she awoke, she knew exactly what to do to rid herself of a troubling allergy. Are you familiar with this Chinese practice, and what are your thoughts on dreams as a doorway to health?
2: Oh, I think that it's a, it's a hugely untapped area, Eldon. Um, I have had a number of clients that have talked about particularly poison in their dreams, or about to eat a food that is covered with insects and bugs and being rotten. And those are the two most common ways that people come to find out about food allergies or toxicities or being gluten intolerant, for example, is repeated dreams of eating something that is just foul and and rotten and covered with insects.
0: And again, I guess the pattern is what's most important here. You have to have a pattern, not just a single dream or two.
2: Well, in in some cases, the the single dream can be telling, but I would really, rather than try and worry about an encyclopedia of images, uh, a pattern will, and it will recur. If you're repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again, you will have a pattern in your dreams.
0: Okay. Now, the Casey Foundation uh put out a course years ago on collective dreaming, and, and I happened to participate and actually facilitated uh, a bit of this course. People that connect in their sleep, or at least they, they report that they connected and they report that they did things together in a collective dream. How is that possible?
2: Well, it argues for the theory that dreams not only occur inside our own little skulls, but they occur in a kind of landscape, a kind of shared dimension. And other cultures find this much more natural than we do here in the West. We get, we get real stuck with this idea. It's like, whoa, what? But I've, I've had similar experiences. In fact, one of the things that I do in my course at the university is offer people the opportunity on Saturday night to have a shared dream experience, and we all try to incubate a dream experience and end up in the same place and see who we encounter. And about fifty percent of the students have some kind of experience with other students in the class. Um, that's not conclusive by any means. It's just an exercise that I like them wow. to participate in.
0: Thirty percent, though.
2: Um, well, between thirty and fifty percent. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's that's really incredible. Uh, all right. I've got to ask this one now. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> <I'm>
2: holding on.
0: <laughs> Tell me all about erotic dreams. How do we classify them? I mean, is this fantasy fulfillment, some sublimated drive, attention release, you know, all of the above? Are we about to fall in love? I mean, people dream dreams of bondage, even rape. Uh, You know, talk to us about sex, Dr. Holloway.
2: Well, um, erotic dreams are are very important. Romantic, emotional, uh, erotic, sexual, they're all important. We use the body as a metaphor often, so that's why dreams are so physical. But I think our sexual dreams are very important as well. They do give us clues to what we want and what we don't want sometimes and it's pretty easy to tell when you awaken from a dream. You either people either have a big yucky feeling or a, oh my gosh, I've got to, you know, sit down and catch my breath. So, it's easy to tell if it is giving you information about what what you want or giving you information about where you are or letting you know something that is not quite right. Um I had a dream years ago about it, that i was with my partner and he was trying to suffocate me and then he scooted down in the bed and drilled little holes in my feet and he said and now i'm going to suck the marrow from your bones and this is all part of his lovemaking ritual and i oh. i woke up from the dream and thought okay I, it could not be more clear that this person is draining the life out of me that he was there to suck the marrow from my bones so that's an example it so don't worry if your dreams are over the top if they're exaggerated, take from them the the message or the implication.
0: Are you? I mean, this is not the partner you're still. With, this is I not
2: the. It. This is not the love of my life. No, this was okay. the marrow sucker. He's gone.
0: All right. Now, how about how about precognitive sexual dreams? I mean, do you ever dream about Bobby Darren or you know?
2: I have not dreamt about Bobby Darren. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes here's a clue about sexual dreams. Most of the time, if you have a partner in your life and you dream about a celebrity or a neighbor or your brother-in-law or sister-in-law or, you know, someone that you probably wouldn't be with, you're actually dreaming about the relationship that you're in and the partnership that you're in. So take the implications from that dream and apply them to analyzing the relationship that you find yourself in. And this is a tough one for people. Women particularly are prone to dreaming about an early, you know, their early love or their first flame, but that's because we get almost imprinted on the first person that we're in love with, and they become the poster person or the stamp for all romantic relationships or all erotic relationships. So don't worry if you keep harkening back to the past. You are not hung up on that person. You're trying to assess and enrich the situation that you have presently.
0: So all of the ladies out there who have had these dreams and have never told their husbands or their their significant other, it's okay for them to just confess because you've given them a patented approval, right? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Ravinder's roaring over here. I don't think <laughs> she's likely to speak up too soon. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I understand that some erotic dreams are not at all about sex. You know, they uh, they indeed can be about a number of other things, including our own conflicts and uh, aspects of ourselves that we hide ourselves from. Uh, seven mortal sins and so on. Uh, flesh that out for us, will you?
2: Well, I think most of our... Uh Most of our dreams, we can take a a look at them and see if they make sense literally. What I was taught years and years ago is, does it make sense literally, yes or no? It's like a decision tree. If it doesn't make sense, then, then it has to be symbolic. So then you say, okay, what could this be about? Could this be... And sexual dreams particularly are a picture of union. They're a picture of connection. So if you are connecting with... Some energy in your life, particularly an ability or a talent, people will often dream that they are having a red-hot affair with someone who emblemizes or symbolizes that talent. So that is one thing to keep in mind with, with some of these things, especially if you think, never in my world. So if you were working with telling more jokes publicly, you might have an erotic dream that you were having a Bling was Phyllis Diller. And you'd wake up and say, Oh dear, Heaven I've forbid. turned a corner in my life. But it, it's not about Phyllis Diller. It's about humor and your comedic timing. And that is not at all uncommon. So mm-hmm. some of the unsettling liaisons that we have, that is one way to understand them.
0: Okay and and now you kind of touched on this but I'm, I'm trying I want you to be a little more precise when when people have abusive sexual dreams mm-hmm. the dream that you had for example sucking the life out of you the marrow out of your bones but but more the where they're beaten or they're they're mistreated mm-hmm. that's not about sex is it
2: No I would say not it it tends to be more about the mixture of sexuality with uh, suffering. And so where I have encountered those those types of dream reports are where the person is in a situation where for the sake of sexuality or for the sake of romance or the relationship, they are suffering from another kind of abuse.
0: Okay, let me ask you this just real quick, like, and we'll move on, because I've got a couple things I want to get for sure in before we run out of time, including some business. But do you think the pairing of violence and sexuality in the media is having any impact on the kinds of dreams people have of this nature?
2: Boy, that is an interesting question, and, and I suspect the answer is yes. I think that um, certainly we we have to borrow images from what we are exposed to, and they have to be having an effect because they become our encyclopedia, our, our visual and emotional encyclopedia as reference points. So I I'd, I'd say yes, and I'd say that violence in particular, I'm I'm sorry to see it be as pervasive as it is, and so uh, packaged in the way that it is.
0: Yeah, where it's almost normal and ordinary to get even, violently get even uh, praised in the movies, the heroes, and so forth. I totally concur. Okay. Can everyone learn to interpret their dreams? And if so, what's the best way? You know, how do we profit from all of your work? How do we learn to advance, recognize, and, and work with our own dreams?
2: by sharing them with other people, that the, the conversation is the important part, uh, talking about them and endeavoring to understand them, writing them down, treating them as you would treat a person that you ha- intend to respect and learn to understand, and coming into what I call right relationship with them, where you treat them with respect, you don't understand them initially, but that doesn't mean you spit on them. It means that you say, I don't understand this person's language, but maybe we can overlap a little bit with some sign language, just as you would a a stranger from a strange land. And if you approach your dreams that way, it is remarkably easy, and they are remarkably accessible. My students tell me this every term. I can't believe how easy this is. If you sit down and write them down and start taking it piece by piece, it's not that hard.
0: Dr. Holloway, you've taught this for years. Do you have a syllabus that you offer online for non-students, uh, or one that you could sneak uh, our audience into the back door of your edu and let them take a look at just what it is that you you teach in your course and how they might profit from that?
2: Um, I don't know if the if the syllabus would really do them much uh, much of a a favor Eldon, but I, I think honestly, the easiest access for them is probably my book, The Complete Dream Book, where I talk about my research with symbols and dream patterns and unusual dreams, and where to start and what if this happens to you. People leaf through that book and say, "Oh, I've had this and this and this and this," and they well, really tell, feel tell us a though, little bit
0: about the book and where we can get the book.
2: It's it's available on Amazon and in many libraries at this point as well and so it's pretty easy to get and used copies are kind of floating around so it's not expensive at all and i think that would be a great uh, launching pad for most people
0: and the book is called again the complete dream book yes and it it has a subtitle doesn't it the com-
2: yeah but i can't remember it <laughs> <laughs>
0: You buried that writer in the basement. That's right. (laughs) Okay. The Complete Dream Book, and you can get it at Amazon. Uh, Jillian, give us your website in 30, 40 seconds, and how our listening audience can connect with you.
2: Okay. com. L-I-F-E-T-R-E-K-S. And the other one is Flash of Spirit, one word, just the way it sounds, .com. And that's where I have a lot of webinars and a lot of short classes available. So if you have an evening free, you can dial in there. That would be great fun.
0: Uh, and I do recommend that you follow through on it. I love your work, Julian. I've read all of your books, and uh, well, I sped read one of them, but I I have read the books, and <laughs> and I love what you do. You are my go to dream person. I hope you will come back and visit with us again. We always have great dialogue, and you're always willing to take on the stuff nobody else wants to talk about. So thank you for your work and for your willingness to share, Doctor Holloway.
2: Thank you, Eldon. Bye, bye, Ravinder. All right,
0: we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to once again thank our guest and thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do remember to tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.